Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Today we are finishing up our mini-series on the story of the prodigal son found in Luke chapter 15. We've been calling it Lost and Found. We began by looking at the character of the prodigal son. Last week we looked at the character of the self-righteous older brother. But today I want us to look at the character of the loving father. And we're going to finish this out. We're going to round this series out by looking at how God personifies himself in this story. You know the story that the father had two sons and the youngest son came to him and said, I want my portion of what's coming to me, but I want it right now. As if to say, I don't want you, I want what you can give me. And this is the the immature approach that many times even Christians or sons, daughters, will take towards God. I I don't want you, I want your blessings. And and so the father gave the blessings to the son. And of course, the son took all the blessings that he had and he went off to a far off land, the Bible says, where he wasted the inheritance of the father and the wealth of the father with wild, foolish living. Eventually, a famine hit that land. Because wherever there is sin, there is famine and starvation. And, and, and he went off to a far off country away from his father. And what happened? He became uh, enslaved and starved and a servant to an unjust and an unloving person. And, and so he came to himself and he remembered the love of his father. And the Bible uh, says this, and we pick up here in Luke 15, verse 20. And so the Bible says the son arose and he came to his father. And that's what a repentance is. It's not just changing your mind. It's changing your actions. He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off. Now now here I want you to, to, to catch the action. Catch the momentum that begins in this verse. It's, it's really amazing. But while he was still a long way in the distance, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and embraced him, and kissed him. You feel the momentum of the story picking up as soon as the father gets involved. It's all downward, it's all negative, it's all, uh, it's all slow until the father gets involved. I want you to know you serve an active God, not a passive God. He saw him, and, and he ran to him, and, and loved him, and embraced him, and, and kissed him. And, and then the son said to him, and here's his prepared speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Today I want to examine the unchanging nature of God's goodness. The eternal, consistent, faithful nature of God's goodness towards his children. And I want you to to see this in the story, that God's unchanging moral standard eventually should become our moral standard. As God applies his characteristics to us, Eventually, God wants to apply his characteristics through us. And so the Father is not just a picture of God. It's a picture of who God wants us to be, how he wants us to act. 
react. The point of the story from the father's perspective, I believe, is, is that God can exemplify the characteristics of the loving father. But I believe even more than that, that God wants to reflect the characteristics of the loving father through his children. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and illuminate this word in this church to us, Lord God. God, today we declare that we want to become a little bit more like you. In Jesus' name. Come on, all God's people said, amen. Amen. For the past few weeks, as I have preached through this series, the graphic behind me has been a picture of a painting. The title of this painting is The Return of the Prodigal Son. This is a famous painting. Of course, many artists have painted scenes from the Bible, but this particular one is painted by one of the most famous artists to ever live, the Dutch master Rembrandt. And he painted this and chose this scene right towards the end of his life. In fact, most, of, most scholars believe that this was his final, and many would even say his greatest work of his life. The culmination of all of his skill, heart, and emotion went into the scene of the return of the prodigal son. And, and what he produced is this, this enduring work of art. But you know that this isn't the first time Rembrandt has visited the story of the prodigal son. When he was a younger man, he came to this story. But what he painted was a very different scene. He painted the prodigal son wasting his father's wealth with wild living. He painted the picture of the prodigal son in the brothel. But what's interesting about this painting that he painted when he was a young man is that he put his own face into the character of the prodigal son. So the prodigal son is a self-portrait. You know, many times that's how we approach the story of the prodigal son. We see ourselves in it. We see ourselves as the ones that were fools, making wrong choices, far off, distant from the Father. We see ourselves as the one that would come back but really needing God's love. And more than that, receiving God's love. Even though, even though we have our own plan of how it's going to work out, we're thankful that God has a, a greater plan. That, that we say, look, we'll just be a servant. But he says, no, under the spirit of adoption, I call you son. I call you daughter. That's what the whole book of Romans is about, that Jesus came not just to save you, but to make you sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. And so when we read the story of the prodigal son, when it's preached, it's almost always preached from that perspective because it's so extravagant, right? It's so easy to relate to that we need the love of the Father and that the grace of the Father is the thing that is going to rescue our soul. And so, of course, when Rembrandt is going to paint the picture of the prodigal son, he's going to put himself, as a young man consumed with luxury and wild living, he's going to put himself into the portrait of the prodigal. But when he gets older, he revisits the story. And he paints a different scene. Not the scene of a, a wild youth doing foolish stuff. He paints the scene of the young, wild youth coming to himself and coming to the feet and the knees of the loving father. And here, he paints another character, the character of the loving father. And what's interesting about this, his final work, is this time, he does not put his face in the face of the prodigal. He paints his self-portrait into the face of the father. Somewhere along the line, he began to see himself not just as the one that needs love, but the one that can give love. 
so amazing is that in the process of his life, he endured pain and hardship. And right before he started this painting, he lost his only son, 27 years old, Titus. And, and it, in, that, in that place of brokenness, he looks again at the story of the prodigal and he says, I would do anything to have my son come back to me who was lost, be found, who's dead, come back alive. And now this artist, towards the end of his life, sees himself not just as a prodigal, but as the loving father. And I think it's a great metaphor for the journey of following Jesus. We all start as the prodigal. And we all start as the one that needs grace and needs love and needs forgiveness. It's where we all begin. But we don't stay there, and we shouldn't stay there. Eventually, Jesus says, but now follow me, which means there's going to be progression. There's going to be advancement. There's going to be new destinations. There's going to be new rhythms. There's going to be a new walk. There's going to be a new direction. Come follow me. And in the course of that, following Jesus, we will move from the place of being the younger brother, and many times we will get caught and trapped in the place of being the older brother. And this is where God has to help us follow him, not into a place of self-righteousness, but into a place of surrender. Because make no mistake, the trap that we walk into out of becoming the prodigal son is the trap of now we're washed up, we're cleansed up, we're around the father, and we are right. The trap of Christianity that the enemy wants to get you with is that you would be, maybe, you are, maybe you're not the younger brother, but now you're the older brother. Now you're self-righteous. Now you're strong. Now you know what should be done. Now you've got an opinion about everyone else. And if you're not careful, self-righteousness can creep into your salvation and it can hold you hostage away from the father. And so what I'm saying today is, is, is the challenge for the prodigals in the room will be to receive God's grace, even though you don't deserve it. That's true. But receive it anyways. The challenge for those of us that are moving into the place of the elder brother is to not criticize, but move into a place of celebrating those that are receiving God's grace, those that are around you, having a relationship with the Father. But can I tell you, it doesn't just end there. Eventually God says, but I want you to look like me. I want you to act like me. Why? Because I'm the father. And kids look like the father. They look like the mother. They look like the parents. And God's saying, I want you to now have my qualities and my traits. Do you remember when Jesus said, be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect? In other words, he's saying, I want you to get his qualities on you and in you. And the truth of the matter is we all have the qualities of our parents in our lives. Even if you've never known your father, you have traits of your father in your looks, in your speech, in your patterns, and it's just in your DNA. But even so much more, if you've known your father, every father raises their kids to be like them. Even if they don't do it intentionally. If the dad's into NASCAR, which I don't even know how you get into NASCAR. <laughs> eventually the kids get into NASCAR. And somehow you have a whole strange world going on over there. The dad's into fishing. The kids get into fishing. If the dad's into finance, they get into finance. You know, my four-year-old son sits at home at the days that he's not at school. And all day long, he watches uh, Disney+. Plus. But he doesn't watch the cartoons. He watches the documentaries on the making of the cartoons. He's four. 
And I'm like, that's my son. He's into the creative process, the experience. He's into how can I accomplish this? And it's like, man, that's, that's wild. And you need to make a lot of money for us. <laughs> Learn animation, computer, computer design. But, but I see, I see a, a form of myself in him. Why? I, I'm his father. He's my son. Eventually, there's going to be an exchange. And there should be. And so what I'm talking about is the maturing process of Christianity eventually leads us out of the place of the prodigal and into the portrait of the father. That God's characteristics should get on his kids. Does that make sense? And so let's examine the loving father. Let's look at his life and let's see what we can take from it and apply in our own lives so that we might as Jesus said, become like our father. When we look at the loving father, the first thing we see, first thing I see, is that the father has an unchanging moral standard. Now, you might not get that maybe right away, maybe on the surface. And even as I say it, it might be kind of puzzling. What does that matter? What does that mean? But, but look at it from this perspective. In this story, we get to see the reaction to the father to his sons. So the foolish son comes to him and is disrespectful to him, to say the least, saying, I want everything that you got. I want it from you, but I don't want you. And, and, and we see the father be gracious and give these things to his son that he did not earn and he did not deserve, but yet the father is gracious. And then when the kid comes back, now we see the father be gracious again. Look at his reactions. He's good at the beginning, and now he's good at the middle. And then we see the elder brother frustrated and angry at the younger brother and then angry at the father. And you would think, well, now he knows better. So now the father is really going to lay down the law. And yet the Bible says the father comes to the older brother and begs him, invites him to come into the home. What am I saying? All through the story, we see that the father does not treat his sons based on how the sons treat him. Isn't that amazing? That the father is good to the sons even when they're not good to him. He's gracious to the sons even when they take advantage of his graciousness. He's loving even when they are unloving. The father is consistent. He's consistent all the way through. His character was not dependent on circumstances. His character was dependent on himself. This is, this is God. God is not deciding how he's going to treat you based on you. He's not, gonna, he's not deciding how he's going to treat you based on the time in which you live, the society or culture that is around you. God decides how he's going to be to you based on himself. God looks at his own character presented on the cross and chooses grace to you. This is incredible because only God would act this way towards his kids. Only a loving father would act this way towards his kids. I, I mean, can you imagine if the father decided to treat the younger son based on his emotions? How would that story go? Can you imagine if the father decided his reaction to the younger son based on the crowd? Because the crowd would never, ever have accepted the younger, the younger brother back. The crowd would have been mortified. The crowd would have been shocked. You rejected our community. You walked away. You devalued our values. You mocked us. And now you want back in? 
I mean, do you remember their reaction when Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today I'm coming to your house? The whole crowd grumbled and complained, saying, of all the people, him? If it was up to the crowd, no one would get saved. We'd all be the crabs pulling each other back down in the bucket. Thank God that he does not choose his reaction to you based on the people around you. Based on the circumstances or the culture or the society around you. I'm thankful that God doesn't come to the older brother and decide how he's going to treat the prodigal based on what religion says should be done. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that God made the law but fulfills the law so that he could extend grace through the law. I, I'm grateful that he didn't come to the older brother and, and, and get an opinion on the side an opinion to punish the prodigal, but yet God says, I'm going to be consistent all the way through. I am not going to change who I am for an acceptance of the crowd. I'm not going to change who I am because of the opinion of my other sons. I will be consistent all the way through. Paul says to Timothy, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. The father is consistent. His nature existed outside of space and time. Before anything was created, he was and is and is to come. He is faithful through a thousand generations, unchanging all the way through. He is the port in the storm. He is the shore for the weary sailor. He is the guard at the gate, and he never sleeps nor slumbers. He protects, he loves, he covers, he's faithful. A faithful father, a consistent leader. He is a consistent leader. In other words, you know what you're going to get with God. God doesn't play mind games with his children. He's not passive aggressive with his children. Well, have you ever have you ever had to um, uh, live under an inconsistent individual, a parent or a boss or a friend or yourself? <laughs> when God shows up, He's exactly the same God that always showed up. You don't have to wonder which version of them is going to walk in the door today. Are they going to be happy? Are they going to blame me for everything? What kind of God? No, he's not a leader like a human leader. He's not, he doesn't have the personality of people. He's not passive aggressive. He's not distant and distrustful. He is good. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You serve a faithful God. The problem is this is difficult for us to grasp because we live in a state of constant change. We are always inconsistent. Our seasons are inconsistent. Our minds are inconsistent. Our moods are inconsistent. inconsistent, And our bodies are inconsistent. We're all over the place, especially in seasons like Thanksgiving and Christmas. We are all over the place. We're inconsistent in our nature. We're up and we're down. And many times we don't even know how to bring consistency to ourselves. And to add on top of that, our fallen nature, which is our sin nature, is always shifting our standards. And that's true of what sin is. Sin shifts 
the standard. Because its goal is to make everything more allowable. Right? Sin is always moving the goalposts. It's always changing its nature. It's always widening what is acceptable. Look, this is why when you look around in society, you don't recognize it right now. This is why when you look around, everything is confusing. It's confusing because there is no moral standards. There's no consistency, either logical or spiritual. There's no consistency in society, and there can't be, because sin in its nature is always shifting. It's like sand dunes that get hit continually by the wind, and every day you come back, they've taken a different shape and a different form based on what the goal of the enemy is, the God of this world, which is always coming after people, he's shifting things. So, so the narrative is always shifting and the, and the values are always shifting and, and the rules are always shifting and the, the mindsets are always shifting. But what is it? It's the force of sin always trying to make what should be wrong right and what should be right wrong and what should be good evil and what should be evil good. He's constantly moving these things around to trap Believers, to trap people in a state of constant change. In other words, you know, society is the ever-shifting sand, but Jesus is the rock of ages. And we have a choice. Who will we serve? I'm grateful that the Father is consistent, so now I can trust him. I can trust him now. See, I have a difficult time trusting myself. I've got a difficult time trusting society. I've got a difficult time trusting people because it's always shifting. Why? Because, because we live in a land and amongst people that have no standards. And if you have no standards, you'll always be unstable. In the, the book of James, James 1.8 says, a divided man, a man with a duplicate, duplicate mind, some, someone that's unsure, is unstable in all of their ways. You could read it this way. A standardless man is unstable in all of his ways. All right, but whose standard do we follow? We can't follow the world because it's always changing. We can't follow our emotions because it's always going to make room for us. We must know and choose to follow the unchanging moral standards of the Father. They've been true from the beginning, and they're true now. The Bible says, even if heaven and earth pass away, my word, my standards will remain. This is worthy of your life. This is worthy of your trust. This is worthy of building your life on. And, and at the risk of going too long on this, I, I just want to add on to this. I think there's something to the ancient wisdom found not only in the word of God, but in the people of God. Right now, we have people that are changing, even Christians, changing their whole worldview, changing their whole ideologies based on the most recent tweet, the most recent book, the most recent course, or the most recent sermon they've heard someone preach. Could I submit to you that your standards cannot, must not, should not, be based on who's in charge in the government. Your standards must not be based on what's popular and trending in society. Your standards must not be based on what you're feeling or even what the crowd around you is feeling. 
It, it should not, must not be based on the latest best-selling book. You say it's number one on Amazon. And it won't be tomorrow. But there is some ancient wisdom. There is some church fathers. The writings of Augustine, the, the works of Luther, the sermons of Spurgeon. I love that we sing these old hymns because there's just something like a deep well in these old songs that say, great is thy faithfulness, thou changest not. There's something there. There's something about the cross. There's something about communion. There's something about gathering together. You say, well, don't you know? We have Zoom now. You don't need to have church. You don't even need to leave your room. You ever see... You ever see uh, Wally? That's the goal. Just get in that pod and just be zoomed around. You don't need church. You've got screens. Can I say there's something about the ancient act of gathering together sons and daughters in the presence of God? It's irreplaceable. There's something about the word of God. I hope you read devotionals, and I hope you follow great people online. But can I tell you, in all the beautiful Pinterest quotes, there's just something about the Word of God. It's deeper than wellness quotes. It's greater than mind coaches. It's, I'm talking about deep things. And you say they're old, yet they're still around. I am way off my sermon now. But I would go a little bit further to say, I would propose to you that newer is not always better. Right? Because I think sometimes we think this is the most recent thought, therefore it's the most advanced thought. But if you study civilization, they have rises and they have falls. It doesn't rise forever. There is only one kingdom that is still advancing today and will be advancing until the end of time. It is the kingdom of God. That's where my hope's going to be. That's where our trust is going to be. That's what we're going to build our life on. That is what we're going to raise our families on. We are a part of the unchanging, eternal advancement of the kingdom of God. Everything else might be good, but I'm going to stick with God. This foremost, that supplementary. Amen? Amen? He is a loving, consistent father. And when he gives grace to the younger brother, when he gives grace to the older brother, know this, that grace is not God changing his standards. Grace is giving us the opportunity for us to return and realign with his standards. Grace is the opportunity for us to check our mind. Grace is the opportunity for us to change our actions. Grace is the opportunity for us to repent from our foolishness and come back into alignment with God's unchanging nature. And so let's look at a few characteristics of his unchanging nature. We see through this story that the loving father is consistently forgiving. He's consistently searching for reconciliation. The Bible says that the father spotted the son a long way off and he ran to him. And you know, that really is what forgiveness is all about. 
It's not waiting for others to come to you in the exact right order, in the exact right way. Forgiveness is active. God was looking and running and moving towards us and, 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 and in his character of forgiveness, God closed the gap. And that's what God does. God closes the gaps between us and him. He is, the Bible says, our ever-present help in time of need. He's our true father. I don't know if you've ever gotten in some trouble, but if you've ever gotten some real trouble, who do you call? You call dad. You know dad's going to be mad. You know it's going to be horrible, you know. But you know even through it all, he is the one that's consistent. When you get into real trouble, call the one that consistently forgives. Call the one that will pick you up. Call the one that will come after you. God is a forgiving God. This is his character. Now, now what, what am I saying? I'm saying that these characteristics rest on the fact that his character is unchanging. In other words, his forgiveness will be now and forever. He will always forgive. This really matters because it's not as if God had these characteristics in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament. We'll see what happens during the second coming. No, no, no. You can trust these characteristics because they rest on his unchanging moral standard. God is a forgiving God. He always closes the gaps. And, and, and that's not like us. We're inconsistent. We are the inconsistent ones. We forgive many times based on how we feel the, the, the forgivee should deserve from us the forgiver. And many times we create distance as protection. We create distance. So God, he searches, he sees, and he runs. But, but we, many times when we're hurt, we don't search, we avoid I'm, I'm about to preach so real right now. We know where they are. We take the, the long route around. We're not going to pass them in the hallway. If we do, thank God for the invention of phones so I, I can pretend I'm doing something really important. Launch the satellite. No, do it. <laughs> All of a sudden, you're a NASA scientist doing important work. No, no, we, we avoid. We create distance. We, we expect people to come to us and come to us in the right manner. No, we're inconsistent with our forgiveness. And, and I'm, not saying that, I'm not saying that you should be close to everyone who's ever hurt you, but I do believe that there's a balance between wisdom and fear. That if it's possible to close the gap, that you are the one to close the gap. If it's possible for you to forgive, that you are the one that pursues reconciliation. Because if not, if you choose to stay as your inconsistent self, if you choose to stay not as the father but as yourself, know this, the enemy will create in you a keep your distance mentality. And there are enough people that will hurt you enough that if you have a keep your distance, avoid mentality, eventually you will end up alone. You'll end up alone on this earth. But that's not God's goal. That's why forgiveness is the, the greater way. It's the true and better way. Forgiveness brings you close again, allows there to be reconciliation. Sometimes the bond gets even greater than there was before, and it brings you close back into relationship. What am I saying? I'm saying that our nature is to be inconsistent, but if we want to become like the Father, we have to become more consistent in our characteristic of forgiving, and I believe that will bring us closer, not just to God, but to those that we really need in life. The Father consistently forgives. More than that, the Father is consistent in his mercy. 
When the, when the sun came, the, 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 the sun has a whole plan. And, and the sun's been rehearsing it. We see him rehearse it twice in the story. And his whole plan is, I'm, I don't need to be a son. I'll just be a servant, and, and I'll just serve you. And, and what his plan is, understand, is it's a plan of restitution. I'll pay you back. I'll take care of what I took. I, I know I was wrong, but if you just give me a chance, I can earn. I can do. I can be better. I can do better. I, 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 can, I can earn your trust. I can earn your love back. So if you'll just accept me, I'll be your hired hand. This is his plan. But you know what's interesting about this plan? It's no better than his first plan. The whole time, the prodigal's got all these plans, and none of them are godly. None of them are godly. I'm grateful for a God that is merciful to us, not just in our, in our mistakes, but in our foolishness as well. God's mercy, God's merciful to his son. His son's trying to perform his speech. He gets to the father and says, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And this is my favorite part of the whole story. The father doesn't even acknowledge the son. He goes, uh, yeah, yeah, get a rope, get a ring. Get shoes on his feet. And meanwhile, he's trying to say, no, no, dad, dad, I will, I'll just, hey, I'll just work, dad. Kill the fatted calf. No, I, no, I, I'll just take pig swine. No, kill the fatted calf. The father doesn't even acknowledge, he, he doesn't even acknowledge the fallen state of his son's mind. He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna overwhelm you with mercy. And I want you to know this. He doesn't just do this once. His mercies are new every morning. He's consistent in his mercy. James tell us, tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. So God is not a divine accountant keeping track of every single thing you've done wrong. This is what God does. He uses mercy and he wipes the ledger as far as the east is from the west. So God removes your iniquities from you. He's consistently merciful. But now God says, I want you to turn and be merciful to those around you. The last characteristic that we see in the story, and believe me, there are so many more even in this story, so many more of God, but these are three that, that stuck out to me that I see Jesus highlighting for us to assimilate and begin to reflect as we see the Father is consistently celebratory. That's a good one. He says, kill the fatted calf, invite the whole city, and let's celebrate. Over and over, he keeps saying, we're going to celebrate you got to understand the fatted calf would have been something that you only do once or twice in your whole life. This is, this is a huge sacrifice. So what the father's saying is this is the best day of my whole life. And so I'm ready to sacrifice for there to be an acceptance in a festival, which is a picture of Jesus. Jesus says, I will die so that there can be a festival. He, he says, kill the fatted calf because we are going to celebrate my lost son. I'm thankful that God is not vengeful. Are you thankful that God is not angry? Are you thankful that God is not distant? Are you thankful that God is not withholding? Because us, in our inconsistency, if the son came back, we might be glad that he's back, but we'll see how you come back. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I just see the father at the desk. He looks up, he sees the son. He sees the son out there. All right, we'll see what, what happens when he gets in the office. All right, on your knees. 
What do you got to say? What do you got to say? You could see the father. That would be us. Withholding. Not this father. Running is celebratory. Killing the fatted calf is celebratory. Welcoming him back in, it's all celebratory. I say this to say, God doesn't look at you and just see your sin. He looks at you and sees his son, and he celebrates his son. He celebrates his daughter. I want you to know he's glad that you're here on Sunday morning. Someone came up to me just past service. He said, I'm so sorry I haven't been at church the past weeks. I'm so sorry. I'm like, dude, you are here right now. I don't know about last week. I'm glad you're here. Let's celebrate the fact that you have come to the Father's house. Let's celebrate the fact that you're getting back on track. Let's celebrate the fact that you are coming before the Father. The truth is, this is the gospel. It's an open invitation to God's house party. That's what church should be like. That's what church should be like. Church should be celebratory. You say, why are you guys so loud all the time? Why is there all the clapping and the, and the amens and the, and the worship and the music? And every time you get there, you're like, come on, give a shout. What's with all this? The last church I went to, no one even looked up, you know. We want to be like God. God's celebratory. I want you to know there's going to be music in heaven. There's going to be dancing in heaven. There's going to be celebrations in heaven. Let's get us started early. And I, and I want to give a warning to, to us Christians that when we begin to get frustrated with all that, that's when we begin to slip into the state of religion, self-righteousness, the older brother. Like I just find it so stunning that when the older brother shows up, he sees in the house that there's music going on and celebrating going on, and that's when he stopped. <sighs> yeah, I tell you, you can always hear a self-righteous spirit. It, many times it exposes itself through picking apart not what's happening, but how it's happening. No, no, no. I believe, I believe, we, should, I believe we should worship God, but I, I don't want electric guitars. I know that's not a real issue here. I know it's not a real. <laughs> but, but, but sometimes you can feel it even in your, old, even in your old, own soul. You know, someone's praying. It's like, you're praying forever. Why would you use that word? Why, what's with the tone? What's with the volume? Or, or sometimes you can feel it in your own soul where it's like, look, I get it. It's enough. But sometimes, do you know how bad it is in the world? Do you know what's going on? Do you know how people are suffering? Hear me. It's not that people, it's not that there's not suffering, it's that God chooses to not maximize on the, on the horror. There's enough of that. God's goal is to bring us out of the horror. And when that happens, it's worth celebrating. Amen. So, so I don't, I want to be like God, who's consistent in his celebration, not like man that's always inconsistent with a religious spirit that chooses to criticize, to critique, to narrow down and know everyone's problems. I guess my challenge for you today is you need to ask yourself, am I able to celebrate? Am I able to celebrate in my home and in the church? And if not, realign that part of your heart to the heart of God. Amen? Amen. Can I have the keys come up? We're going to close now. And, and, and my... my my goal today is that you would see this story not just from the perspective of the prodigal son, but that you'd see it from the perspective of the loving father. And that you'd begin to move from the prodigal into the perspective of the loving father. And I hope you're on your way in that journey. If you're following Jesus, I want you to know you're on your way in that journey. You might still be inconsistent. You'll have your days. You might still get the attitude and not celebrate. You, you might still 
have a critical spirit on you. You might still ha- have a spirit of everyone else is wrong. You might have a spirit that's unforgiving on you. But can I declare over you, that spirit will not be on you forever. It will not own you. It does not have authority over you. Your father is consistent. He is faithful. And his spirit is going to get on you. His spirit is one that forgives. That's merciful. That's celebratory. That's loving. That's kind. That's good. That's a blessing to those around it. God displays his character in this story to us. Not only that we would receive it, but that we could replicate it. It's it's essentially like Jesus is saying, have you received forgiveness? Then forgive. Have you received mercy? Have you been celebrated? Then now go and do likewise. God's unchanging moral standard must become our own. I'm going to close with this. They were asking Jesus about paying taxes. And Jesus said, will you bring to me a Roman coin? When they did, he said, whose image and whose likeness is on this coin? And they said, it's Caesar's. So Jesus said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But he followed it up by saying this, but you give unto God what is God. The real question is, whose image and likeness is on you? When God created you, the Father stamped his image and likeness on you. You're not called to be the prodigal forever or the self-righteous older brother. You're called to come into alignment with God and have his image and his likeness, his values and his standards be stamped into your mind, stamped into your emotion, stamped into your decisions and your actness. Eventually, you're called to look like God. Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.